Good morning. Is that better? Try it. Good morning. Is that better? Good. It is a privilege to be here this morning. Um, I am very excited. I should just tell you that in case you can't tell. Um, hopefully that will be apparent once my heart stops beating fast and my arms stop shaking. But I am very excited to be up here to be able to preach to you this morning. Not just for the opportunity to preach, but mostly because of what um, I get to preach about. Brandon said I could do whatever I wanted. And so I picked uh, probably my favorite passage in the Bible. This passage right here, Exodus 34, 1-8. Um, but I don't want to spend time telling you why I think it's, you know, a great passage. I think the text will hopefully show us why it's a great passage, a remarkable passage, and very, very, very important for us today. So there are many reasons I think that's the case, but we're going to focus on two of those reasons this morning. And the first reason that this passage is just remarkable, important, and very applicable is because it has to do with the presence of God. That's always important. Part of what is at stake in our passage is how the presence of God can be or dwell among people. In our passage today, we read, we read just a second ago about the Lord passing before Moses on Mount Sinai, making himself known. And in that moment, it's amazing, Moses comes closer than any other human being to experiencing the presence of God this side of the Garden of Eden. You think about that for a minute. Because of the sin that occurred, Adam and Eve, we had to leave the Garden as, as humanity, and God's presence was taken away from his creation. And this is the closest anyone has come to experiencing that presence, this side of sin. That's pretty remarkable. So how is this possible? How can Moses do that? Why, why, why did the Lord do that? There's a lot of questions we can ask. But the presence of God, I think, is an often, is this echoing too much? Are we okay? Is an often overlooked um, process in the salvation, in salvation. We often just, as soon as we get to forgiveness of sins, which is very, very, very important, we usually stop often, because that's our focus, forgiveness of sins. But we need to continue on. What is the goal of salvation? So if we stop at forgiveness, I guess uh, an example of that might be um, receiving that gift that you always long for, whether it's your, you know, your birthday or Christmas, you're unwrapping, taking the wrapping off and the bow, and you realize, wow, whatever, that book or that fishing boat or whatever it may be for you, um, it's there, you know, you have it, and then you don't take it out of the box. Or preparing your favorite meal going to all that time, you know, for a guy, planning days ahead, the right marinade, the right seasoning, getting it, you know, just perfect and tender, throwing it on the grill, you know, timing it, making sure the temperature's right, sticking the thing in, putting it on the plate, garnishing it with onion rings or whatever it is, and then not eating it. We would never do that. But I think often, just as we think about salvation and what that means, we stop at forgiveness, and we never eat the rest, so to speak, or take it out of the box. So one reason that we endure this rat race that we've been talking about in Ecclesiastes 
is for the ultimate reward of dwelling with God face to face once again. And our passage has um, just has a lot at stake about the presence of God. So that's the first thing we're going to focus on. The second thing is that this passage sets a precedent. And it sets a precedent, not just for Israel, who is one of the main characters of our story, and it sets a precedent not just for the Old Testament and not just for the Bible, for, but for all eternity. A precedent is set. And that precedent is how the Lord relates to his people. And not just Israel in our story, and not just us, but his chosen people for all eternity. How does he relate to them? And moreover, how does he relate to those people that are sinful, which we all are? So from Genesis 3, way back at the beginning of the Bible, until our passage here in Exodus 34, God has a little bit here, a little bit there, shown how he does that. He's revealed how he's going to treat sin and how he's going to, I guess, reverse the effects of sin. And we see that immediately after Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned. And we call that the fall, right? The fall, the ultimate sin. Even at the end of Genesis 3, in which the fall occurs, the Lord is already dealing with sin. He provides clothing for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. A few chapters later, when sin has become such a problem that the Lord brings a flood to restart, in essence, the earth, to destroy it and recreate it, he saves Noah and his family. And then a little farther, he makes a huge promise to a very elderly Abraham and his barren wife that one day he's going to make a great nation out of them. And later on in the book, as he deals with that promise that he made to Abraham, and we see that through how he interacts with Jacob and his family, he saves Jacob's family from famine and sets them up very nicely in Egypt under the favor of Pharaoh. So we get little bits and pieces here and there about how God has dealt with his sinful people and what he's going to do. So with these passages in mind, we're going to approach our passage for the day. And so just keep in mind precedent and presence. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we have together, Lord. Thank you for your word and through it that you have revealed yourself, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds, everything we have, Lord, to what you say in your word. I ask that your spirit, Holy Spirit, would join us, convict us, mold us, and shape us, Lord, that we would be the people that you want us to be, Lord, as you deal with sin and sin in our own lives. Pray for these things in your name. Amen. Author Terence Fretheim summarizes Exodus in this way. He says, The book of Exodus moves from slavery to worship, from Israel's bondage to Pharaoh, to bonding to Yahweh, the Lord. It moves from enforced construction of buildings for Pharaoh to a glad and obedient offering of materials to build a place for God to dwell in the tabernacle. Exodus advances from an oppressive situation in which God's presence is hardly noted to the end of the book when God's presence fills the tabernacle. There's quite the contrast in this book. 
we could maybe condense that down to a little little smaller um, summary to work with by saying that the Exodus is a story of God redeeming, training, disciplining, renewing, and dwelling among his chosen people. We see all those things in this book. And to try to even shrink it down a little smaller so that we can hopefully remember it, the whole purpose of the Exodus was for God to dwell with his people. The whole purpose of the Exodus is for God and his people to be together. And so with those thoughts in mind, we're going to look at our passage. We're looking at uh, Exodus 34, 1 through 8 this morning. We're going to divide that up into three sections, 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 7, and then verse 8. We'll look at it at the end. So uh, verses 1 through 4, the expression of God's mercy towards sinners. The expression of God's mercy towards sinners. And I'll read those verses here right now. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. And present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain as well. So the Lord cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went on up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now, this statement may sound crazy, but I'm going to say it anyways. These may possibly be the most sweetest, hope-inspiring words that Moses ever heard. They may possibly be the most sweetest, hope-inspiring words that he ever heard. And it sounds a little crazy, but let's listen to those words again. Specifically, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and present yourself on the top of the mountain. And so those words, like the first, like the first that it says, imply that these are obviously not the first tablets and that something big has happened. And so this extremely positive and encouraging interaction between the Lord and Moses is already an amazing demonstration of grace and mercy. But in order to fully understand that and understand the tension and the gravity behind the situation, we need to back up a little bit in the story. And so these verses, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 34, I guess you call them sort of the the hinge on which chapters 32 through 34 swing. So without these verses, the door or these chapters, so to speak, are just going to fall completely apart. These are the most important verses in that chapter. Because verses 1 through 8 that we just have read and we're going to focus on, they come after one of the most blatant acts of sin and disobedience that we may find in the Bible, at least post-fall, at least post-Genesis 3. But in order to understand that, we're going to have to back up a little farther than chapter 32. We're going to have to back up to chapter just after chapter 15. So I'm going to try to condense a lot of those into just a short little summary here. So I hope this all makes sense. But just after the Exodus, after God redeemed his people from the bondage of slavery... At the end of chapter 15, no sooner has he performed some of the most mighty, wonderful, you know, miraculous signs, locusts, thunder, turning the river into blood, all these things, and performing just a gracious, patient, and merciful act in redeeming his people. 
No sooner had that occurred than the people of Israel start grumbling. As soon as they leave, they start grumbling. But the Lord put up with all the grumbling and griping. Um, And when the people grumbled and griped, he provided them water. When they continued to grumble, he provided them food. When they grumbled some more and were were in danger of being attacked by people that didn't want them to make it out, he gave them victory over those enemies, over those people. And when things were in a bit disarray, he even helped structure a, a better leadership structure for the millions of people that were there. And to top it all off, he entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. That's kind of the pinnacle. So despite all their griping and complaining, moaning, the Lord was always gracious, patient, and merciful to them. And so this covenant, this is the covenant of the Old Testament. There's a few different covenants, but this covenant at Mount Sinai is the covenant that the Lord enacted with his people Israel. One of the reasons he does that is because he's fulfilling a promise he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, those three main patriarchs in Genesis, that he would make a great nation out of them, that he would take all those descendants, take them to the promised land, and dwell with them. And one of the ways he's doing that is to enact this covenant with, his, with, the, with Israel. And so the Lord promises in this covenant to be Israel's God and to lead them and be with them and dwell with them. And he calls them his, his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a royal nation. And if they would just obey his commandments, this covenant's going to last forever. And Israel agreed. And just right after that covenant, Israel is handed the Ten Commandments, of which hopefully we're somewhat familiar with. This is kind of the sign, the token from God that this is really happening. Here are these Ten Commandments. And so Israel knew from those Ten Commandments what they ought to do, how they ought to behave. And a little later, Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the rest of the law, the rest of the instruction about how Israel could live with this holy God. And while Moses is up there, we see in chapter 32 that um, Israel is breaking the first two commandments. You shall not have any other gods before me, is the first one, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image and bow down to it and serve it. So no sooner had they received the law, no sooner had they entered a covenant that they were breaking it. I mean, it's just pretty... It just leaves you speechless. So why did they do this? What happened? So we see in chapter 32 that Israel convinced Aaron, who was Moses' brother and future high priest of Israel, they convinced him to make a golden calf for them. They said, we don't know where Moses went. Make us a God that we can worship. Even though they had just heard and seen God from the mountain, heard his voice and received his commandments. And so it says in verse 6 of chapter 32, it says, The people rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink, and they rose up to play. And so this event, famously known as the Golden Calf Incident, is one of the lowest points in the history of Israel, if not the lowest. And this event basically undoes, undoes, undoes everything that has taken place in the preceding 31 chapters of the book. 
all that God has worked and done and provided for the people, they've basically thrown back in his face. The exodus, the ratifying of the covenant, the assurance that Israel would be forever God's chosen people, all this they've just thrown back in his face. So we've got to pause here just a minute, just try to grasp the gravity and the tension of the situation. And so everything the Lord has done, people have said no. We want this golden calf to be our God, not you. The people are saying, we would rather have sin than you. We would rather you know, bow down to this calf than the God of creation who redeemed us, who saved us, who just entered into covenant with us. Basically saying, thanks for all you did, God, but we want to go back to Egypt. This is just utterly ridiculous, I mean, when you think about it. So just to get back to the covenant for a second, when two people make a covenant, or two parties, or you know, whatever it is, if somebody breaks it, it's usually null and void, right, or usually done away with. But if there is a chance for restitution, usually it's the person who did the offending or the wronging or the breaking that has to extend that hand of peace or restitution or whatever it is. Israel broke this covenant, not God. But our question here at chapter 32 is, who's going who's gonna to extend that hand? What's going to happen? After all this work that God has done, what is going to happen? Is there anything Israel could possibly do to make things right again? And it seems like the Lord would be totally 100% in the right if he just left Israel to rot in the desert. Right? Thanks, you know, I did all this and you said no. I'm just going to go find another people. And in fact, he tells Moses for a little while, I'm going to start all over with you. He's ready to do that. So at the end of chapter 32 here, and kind of through 33, before we get to our passage in 34, there's a lot of unanswered questions. What's going to happen? Will God continue to, you know, fulfill his promise that he made, even though Israel, you know, broke his covenant? Will Israel survive? Will they even make it to the promised land? Will God go with them? So we'll get to those questions in a minute, but hopefully just this background gives us a better picture of why I said at the beginning that crazy statement, this might be one of the most sweetest things that Moses ever heard. This make two tablets like the first means that God is going to renew the covenant. We're not sure how it's going to work yet, but God is willing to do this. So despite all that Israel did, God is willing to give it a second chance. And God calls Moses up into the mountain, as we, as we read, and it's just interesting that the stark contrast that we see to chapter 32, verse 6. Mo, or God tells Moses, early in the morning, rise up and go up to the mountain. I'm going to give you the law again. The people back in chapter 32 rose early in the morning to go sin and bow down and worship another god. And so there's just quite the contrast and the tension about what's going on. Despite this early rising to worship another god, God is ready to meet Moses early in the morning and still be their god. So why is God going to renew the covenant? How can he do this? Will it be the same covenant? Will it be different? What's going to happen? And so we take these questions uh, to, to verses 5 through 7. We're going to move on there. 
So verses 5 through 7 is the proclamation of mercy towards sinners. The proclamation of mercy towards sinners. And I'll read those verses here. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And keeping uh, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. One of the reasons I enjoy this passage so much is just um, just the fascination and, and often puzzlement it has caused me. I mean, why these words? Why does God choose these words at this moment in time to reveal himself to Moses? When we are asked to describe God or what are God's attributes, you know, that's another way we, we, we think of it, what do we usually say? Or what words do we use? We often mention, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing, majestic, powerful, sovereign. And those are all true. I mean, those are true things about God. They're correct. They're not bad words to describe God. In fact, I want a God who is all-knowing. I want a God who is in charge of the creation. I mean, if I'm in charge, it's going to be ruined. We can see that, you know, if Israel's in charge, we're in trouble. I want a God who is majestic. So those aren't bad words to describe God. But, you know, I would think that if we just went out on the street, downtown Natick, and just ask people, well, you know, how would you describe God? Whether or not they read the Bible or even knew what God was, they may come up with some of those words I just mentioned, right? Sovereign, powerful, even though those are true. But in this dire moment of Israel's history, God has chosen these words and not any other. And, you know, he's God. He could have made up words. You know, if, he, if you've ever spoken German, you can just make up any word you want. I mean, God invented German. He could make up any word he wanted. And, to, to, you know, just to better encapsulate who he is. But at this moment in time, this is what he chose to do. So why? Why? So hopefully this isn't too frustrating, but I'm going to answer that why question with another question. we got to think, has Moses, Israel, or us, have we ever seen God act in a way that wasn't merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? Has Moses or Israel or us ever seen God respond to sin in a way that wasn't patient or slow to anger, loving, forgiving, and just? I think the answer to that is no. And so God, in a way, is connecting the dots for Moses. Or putting words to his actions. He is in essence saying, you know, when I chose Israel out of all the other nations on earth to be my treasured possession, that was grace. They received something they did not deserve. That was grace. When I redeemed Israel from the bonds, the bondage of slavery, and when I fulfilled that promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. That was grace. That was steadfast love. That was faithfulness to my word. 
when I endured the grumbling and complaining that started soon after Israel left Egypt, that was patience. That was steadfast love. That was faithfulness. And when I initiated the covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, that was also steadfast love. That was faithfulness. That was grace. And after that golden calf incident, right now here on the mountain, I am again showing mercy, grace, forgiveness, patience, steadfast love, all those things that the Lord proclaimed. And in every situation dealing with sin, I act in complete justice. So God is telling Moses, not only is this who he has always been, but this is who he will always be. And that is key. It's critical that these words don't just look back over Israel's history, even though they kind of give us the foundation for these words. But it's very important that these look forward because Israel's going to sin again. What happens when they sin again? What happens when they break the covenant again? It is important that these words look forward as well as backwards because I sin and you sin. We sin. So how does God respond to us when we sin again and again and again? And at the beginning of our time, I gave you know two reasons why this was an important passage, a remarkable passage for us, because of the presence of God and because of the precedent it sets. So we're going to look at those again here, but I'm going to start with the precedent. What precedent was set? And just in terms of the Old Testament, um, this is one of the most often quoted passages of Scripture, Exodus 34, 1 through 8. You can see allusions and direct quotations all over the place. Uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Nehemiah, many times in the Psalms, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Nahum. It is all over the Scripture. This is a foundational passage. But we're going to look specifically at Psalm 103, verses 6 through 13. That was our call to worship today. And I'm going to read that. And this is kind of a somewhat of a direct quotation, but also a commentary in a way. The psalmist is common, you know, commentating on what God did and you know, who he is in light of that. So let's read. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So from this passage, what precedent has been set? The precedent that God is a God, the Lord is a Lord, who does not deal with us according to our sins, does not repay us according to our iniquities. That's the precedent that is set in our passage. But we have to ask, how is that possible? How can God be just? It says, you know, those last few words of, a, of, of a verse 7, where God is, you know, describes himself as, Forgiving iniquity, but by no means clearing the guilty. And that's another word for justice. How can he be a just God and not punish me for my sin? Or punish you for your sin or Israel's Israel's sin? The answer is Jesus Christ. I mean, it's got to be the answer, right? But we look look back quick, though, in uh, Exodus 32.30, in the aftermath of the golden calf incident. Moses tells the people of Israel, 
you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses uses those words. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses goes up to the Lord and begs and pleads for forgiveness. He even offers his own life up in exchange for Israel's fate. You can take my life, Lord, he says. Just forgive the people. Moses is willing to do that. But the Lord says, no, no, that's not going to work, Moses. But Moses, the leader of Israel, the great prophet, you know, the only person allowed on Mount Sinai, and as we said earlier, the person that has come closest to experiencing the presence of God, he could not atone for our sins, that great holy person. So if he can't, who can? That's the question you've got to ask. And again, it points to Christ. How is the Lord able to forgive Israel for this horrible act of rebellion and still remain just? Jesus Christ. And so as much as this passage looks backwards over the Lord's relationship with Israel, it looks forward in anticipation of our relationship as well. And it, look forward, it looks forward to a time when full atonement for sin will be made. And it looks to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so that leads us to the second point, the second thing that was uh, important, the presence of God. And after Israel broke the covenant, it was up in the air whether God would still dwell with them in the promised land, whether he would be present with them. So how can God, again, we ask the question, be holy and still dwell with his people? And amazingly, it took the presence of God coming to the earth in the form of Jesus Christ to make atonement for sin and to ensure that God's presence would not leave his people. Does that make sense? The presence of God had to come down to ensure that the presence of God could stay with his people. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh. The word is another word used to describe. The word is another word. Another way to describe Jesus. The word became flesh, became man, and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God was present with his people on earth once more, but this time it was to atone for sin. And so not just sin from the golden calf incident, not just Israel's sin, but sin for all eternity. So the only way that God, the Lord, was able to forgive Israel in Exodus 34 and renew the covenant and still remain just because he knew the presence of God would return to earth in Jesus and make full atonement. He was able to fulfill that promise to dwell with his people because Christ made atonement. Christ shed his blood as a payment for sins. And he rose from the dead, breaking the power of sin. And it took the presence of God here on earth to accomplish the goal of salvation, God dwelling with his people once more. And so I mentioned earlier, we often stop at forgiveness instead of continuing on to the end, the process of salvation. And we see what the end in is in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. 
So here we see that end goal, why this passage is so important. The presence of God is at stake, and that's the goal. So we're going to quickly continue on to verse 8, going back to Exodus 34 and verse 8. We see the proper response of sinners, proper response of sinners. And I'll read that verse here. It says that Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The words of the Lord, coupled with all the mighty works Moses had seen the Lord perform, and realizing that Israel was not receiving what they deserved, caused Moses to respond in this way. Caused him to respond with the action everyone should have towards the mercy of God, humility, and worship. Moses and Israel's sin came face to face not only with the holiness of God, but with his grace and mercy and his patience and his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his justice. And Moses hears in that proclamation from the Lord that he is a just and merciful God who will go beyond justice to forgive people and welcome them back into the relationship. Now, when Moses you know, heard this proclamation, I'm not going to try to figure out what Moses was thinking but I'm pretty sure he wasn't thinking, oh, Jesus, oh, that, that's how this is possible. He probably wasn't necessarily thinking about that, but he did know in some way, somehow, the Lord, um, excuse me, the Lord, I lost my place, this is great. The key point, preacher's worst nightmare. We're start all over. But at that moment, you know, he wasn't thinking about Jesus. He did know in some way that the Lord was being merciful. The Lord was forgiving Israel. The Lord was doing something that really was out of the realm of all those things, out of justice. How can he be just? We've asked that question. We know the answer because we have the whole scripture. But the Lord was not exacting the correct punishment for the idolatrousness that Israel performed. And so Moses realizes it's not going to be Moses or Israel or anybody's obedience that keeps the relationship going with the Lord. It will always be God's grace, mercy, steadfast love, forgiveness, and justice that drives the relationship and sustains it, that allows the Lord to continue to live and dwell with his people. And I'm sure, you know, when Moses heard these words and this proclamation, he wasn't thinking, Oh, you know, like we saw in Revelation 21. Oh, new creation. We're going to dwell with God. All will be right. But he was, sure, overwhelmed by the fact that a renewal of the covenant meant that the Lord was going to fulfill his promise and continue to dwell with his people. And so we see that promise just in a little way begin to get fulfilled at the end of Exodus. The end of the book of Exodus, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so as we talked about kind of summarizing the book of Exodus earlier, we go from God hardly being mentioned at the beginning of the book to God's presence filling the tabernacle. And the only reason that that's possible is because of his grace and mercy. And so the Lord is a God who does not deal with his people according to their sins. And he is renewing his creation so that someday he will dwell face to face with his people once again. And so we ask, why did, these, these, uh, why did the Lord choose these words? 
Because this is the God we need. There is no hope for us without a God who is, you know, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, but especially who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and just. This is the God we need, and that's who he revealed himself to be. I want to end our time with this thought. I know I used to do this. I used to read about Israel and just think, oh, those awful people. What were they thinking? Or I just think, man, they screwed up. I'm just glad I don't do it like that. Or they really needed help. That's why he chose them. They really needed help. And if, I mean, joking aside, if we think that about Israel, we're in trouble because we are Israel. If we somehow look at their sin and see it as greater than ours, we're in trouble. And if we have not seen our sin for what it is, then how can we receive the mercy, the grace, the faithfulness, the love, all those words that the Lord used to describe them? Our sin is just as blatant as the golden calf incident. Whether it's slowly running through that stop sign or fudging on our resume or, you know, just those little things are just as blatant of sin against God in the way he is, wants his world to be lived in. So we all have our golden calves. We, we all bow down to something other than the Lord. We have erected something in our life to which we devote time, energy, and resources. And we go get fulfillment from that instead of getting fulfillment from God. We all have those golden calves. What are those? That's what we have to ask ourselves. What are we adoring and worshiping instead of the Lord? So again, what precedent is set? The precedent that the Lord is a God who does not deal with his people according to their sin. And that he is renewing his creation from the effects of sin so that one day he will dwell face to face with, face to face with his people again. I mean, this is the greatest news possible in the world. When Moses heard this news, when Moses was stunned by what God said, his response was submission and worship. What is ours? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God we need. You know us, Lord. You know the effects that sin have on our lives. And you know what needs to be done, Lord. And we thank you that you have done it. Thank you that you are a God of second and third and hundredth and thousandth chances, Lord. That despite our sin and ugliness, Lord, you remain steadfast and faithful. That your love never ends. And that through your grace, we have received what we do not deserve. And through your mercy, we have been kept from what we do deserve, Lord. We thank you for being our God. In your name, amen.